0: To Twibley, or this week was way better last year my name is bill with one l with me he is a nigerian prince and he would like you to hold on to some money for him all he needs is your account and routing number it's mr <clears throat> it's prince mclarge
1: <laughs> yes that's me the artist formerly known as prince mclarge and i <laughs> have uh been entrusted with the fortune of my great-uncle, Mobuto Seiko. And when he was chased from power, it uh, was locked away from my family. How's it going, man?
0: Uh, not so bad. Somebody messaged the Twibley account. Ooh. You know, some sort of thing, like, you know, the first five people that can say this will get, five, you know, a $500 gift card or whatever. Right. And I, I just responded with, does anybody fall for this? That's and me. they responded with... You, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I like people like that. At least they're blunt about it, you know.
0: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Please message Twibley with, with your your with all your vulgarity,
1: all your scams and vulgarities. Yes, we are we're, we are one stop shop.
0: So you know what the my favorite part about doing this show is? I learn so much stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, you know, we all get stuck in our own little ruts. And we all like, you do the same thing. You watch the same programs. I watch wrestling on Mondays and I always watch wrestling on Fridays and Thursday. I do the show with you and I got my own little rut. So to kick the jukebox, I, I kind of need to be reminded. Right. And last week or the week before we were talking about American graffiti. Yes. And I had mentioned that I had never watched it. Mm-hmm. Well, you can change that because I watched it. Yeah. Wow. What'd you think? Week. Um, I liked it. There's been a lot of movies since then yes. that have obviously taken a lot of leads from that movie. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Lucas, uh, the influence of Star Wars absolutely overshadows the Im- incredible influence that American Graffiti has.
0: So American Graffiti, if nobody has seen it, has about four to four to six intertwining stories that all take place with the same group of friends Over the same night. Mm -hmm. But they're all their own little individual stories. Yes. As I'm watching it, there are some scenes. If I did see that movie, I watched it when I was very young, like nine. Right. Like like a couple of things popped out of me, like the chassis getting ripped out of the cop car. Mm -hmm. That rang a bell. But like we said, uh, like two seconds ago that this movie has influenced so many other movies that that scene might appear somewhere else. It's very possible. Yes, that's one that sticks
1: out for me, too. And it was duplicated in Porky's. That's where I remember
0: the duplication from. Maybe that's where I'm thinking of it, yeah.
1: Pretty much Porky's is one of the stories kind of in American Graffiti. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where I remember that one from. Among, you know, it, it being done or stuff similar to that in like I don't know. I don't know if it was episodes of Happy Days or not, but yeah, there's a there's a ton of stuff that carries over into other films and influences other films and and TV.
0: That's another thing too, is you know, everybody in this movie are they either teenagers or they're young 20s playing teenagers. And even though I'm this like middle-aged man, I still see all of those actors as being older than me. Yes. Like when I watch that movie. I'm not watching it as middle-aged Bill. Right. I'm watching it as
1: teenage
0: Bill. Yes. And Richie Cunningham, or whatever his name is in that movie, is Mm -hmm. older than I am. Yes. I don't know if that's unusual. It's
1: funny. When I go back and watch it, too, and I see, like, Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus to me, is always, like, 32 or 33 years old, getting ready to go jump in a shark cage. And even seeing him in this, where he is clearly, like playing a character who's 18 and looks like somebody younger than my son, I still see him as an, a guy who's way older than I am. Even when, right. if I had never experienced him in film at all, I would recognize that he was a kid. I, yeah. I My brain doesn't map the kid Richard Dreyfuss into anything. No, he's Hooper. Yeah, right, exactly. Same with, <laughs> even like with um uh, Mackenzie Phillips or Cindy Williams. Like I see all of them as older than me because this film was made when I was so young.
0: Mackenzie Phillips had a really strange story arc. Like, I don't think, and not her own personal life withstanding, but (laughs) I don't think that story arc could take place in 2022. She plays like a 14-year-old kid who's a little wise beyond her years, but she's still 14. Mm -hmm. And she's hanging around with, through no fault of his own, an older dude. He's like 19, 18, 19, or something like that. And you can see that she kind of has like a, a May-December kind of crush on him. And, I mean, the relationship between the two of them never gets inappropriate. But there is some kind of like weird attraction between the two of them in the movie. Yes. And I don't think that storyline could get played out in 2022.
1: No, it would be problematic would, now. Yeah,
0: Yeah, red flags galore. So that was interesting that that kind of story doesn't get told anymore.
1: No, agreed. Again, I love the visuals. I love the way that Lucas is able to create the scene, the the visual scene of like 1962 with the cars and the the way he uses music and all that stuff. It it had never been done before. It's as interesting to watch, I think, as Star Wars is, but for different reasons.
0: All right. Before we get on to the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. All right. There is a state in this country who, for whatever reason, has decided that their state vegetable is the watermelon, <laughs> which is not a vegetable, nope. not even a little bit. That's true. Uh, so which state is so mind-bogglingly dim that their state vegetable is a watermelon? Uh,
1: I've been to many states, Bill. Many. And I know none of the state vegetables. So I'm just going to roll
0: the dice and say, sounds like
1: a Alabama thing.
0: Okay, you literally have a 1 in 50 chance of getting this right. You have 2% chance of getting this right. I'm pretty sure. And I will tell you at the end of the show. Okay. August 8th, 1974,
1: President Nixon, or I should say embattled, President Nixon, uh, following the Watergate scandal, gave us his famous, you won't have Dick Nixon to pick around anymore. And then he says, see you later, and he takes off. He resigns from the White House to what should be a life of shame and turns out not to be. But Nixon resigns in 1974, elevating Henry Ford, not Henry Ford, (laughs) Gerald Ford, to the
0: presidency. Gerald Ford was the only president of the United States to not be elected. Yes.
1: Uh, Uh, Yeah, that's right, because Agnew uh, resigned right before Nixon did. And he was right. Speaker of the House, right?
0: Ford was, right? And uh, yeah, Gerald Ford got uh, replaced Spiro Agnew as the vice president because Spiro Agnew resigned because he was taking bribes. Yeah, yes. A- and then, uh, then General Ford was a vice president, and then Nixon resigns. Uh, you know, a couple of months. I forget how how far along it was later, but it wasn't long. So here's General Ford. All of a sudden, is now president of the United States, and just like what, 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 what? <laughs>
1: I fell over my
0: shoelaces again. Yeah. Yep. I've been into a tamale. <laughs> and one of my favorite uh Dick Nixon trivia uh, uh, bits of knowledge about him is in his later days, he used to love listening to hip hop and rap. Yeah. He really found it entertaining. So he died in like nineteen ninety four, so and like I said, in his later days he loved listening to rap. So you get to figure he was probably like into like Third base.
1: <laughs> it takes a nation of millions to hold us back.
0: Jimmy Carter gets the gas face. <laughs> oh my God! Nixon did the gas face without before the gas face was even the thing.
1: That's, that's true. Yeah, maybe they were just maybe they were. It's like it's a circle of life, right? They he, they copy <laughs> him and he copies them.
0: Can you just like imagine though, like Richard Nixon calling up <laughs> Gerald Ford in the middle of the night, like crank phone calling him, hey Jerry. I heard you're down with OPP. <laughs> Other people's presidencies. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, is that you? <laughs> it just hangs up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Where's this? All right, moving on to the next day, August the 9th, 1984. Your friend and mine, Cindy Lauper, gets her very first number one hit with Time After Time. Ah,
1: great song.
0: Beautiful song.
1: Beautiful song, yeah. And I remember that video was played 900 million times on MTV, and I tried to watch it every single time it was on because it was such a good tune. And it was a great
0: song with a beautiful video to go with yeah, it, yeah.
1: great song with a beautiful... It was one of the one of the early cinematic ones, so it really, really played well. I think that's what her first of... She had two number ones.
0: Uh, Yeah, with True Colors a few years later, yeah.
1: True Colors. Again, a similar song in style, ballad style. Her poppy fun songs... They charted, but they never went to number one like Shebop and, you know, girls just want to have fun, etc. But time after time really showed the range of vocal range and talent that she had. It's a great tune.
0: Amazing voice. Very strong advocate, especially for like the LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember hearing her getting interviewed on a podcast and one of the hosts and this was probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. You know, we've come a long way just in the last 10 years and one of the hosts had made a joke and Cindy wasn't on board with the joke and she just sailed into him. And they aired the whole interview too. And she just sailed into him and then he was like, okay, all right, it was only a joke. And she was like, no! And she just kept going on and on like, yeah, she does not mess around. no nope. Good for her. Nope. No, I agreed. Uh, it would be hilarious
1: to listen to her and, like, Gene Simmons on the same podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could find a way to make that happen. That would be really funny. Two very contrasting life philosophies, shall mm-hmm. we say? Yes. And also two very contrasting voices. Yes. They'd be like, Well, Cindy, we want
1: to... <laughs> Somebody out there who has access to these two people, you must make this happen.
0: <laughs> All right, so what do we have for the 10th?
1: August 10th, 1966. The U.S. Mint stops printing the $2 bill because it's hard to use and people don't know what to do with it. Ten years goes by before they start printing them again. And I think they only started printing them again because the the Secretary of the Fed's great uncle wanted to give out some birthday gifts <laughs> and needed $2 bills to put in the cards. So,
0: <laughs> I'm going to assume it had to do with the bicentennial because the oh, back the backside of the 2 dollar bill is the signing of the declaration of independence so yes. that's probably why it got reissued in 1976 yeah.
1: i don't think they they kept them going more than a year
0: i'm not because- sure yeah I, I work at a renaissance fair you know where cash only i don't take credit cards and there will be People every year that will like go to the bank and get or go to the probably to the, the subway station and just like get all the Sacagawea and gold coins. And they like yep. they enjoy paying me with gold coins. And I just like give them dirty looks. And yes. <laughs> but there was this one guy who came in who had a. St- Stack. He must have been somebody's uncle. He had a stack of $2 bills and he paid for every game with $2 bills. My boss was like, what the hell is going on? Because he, he probably had a good like $32 bills by the end of the day. Wow. In my
1: experience growing up, they always came from like an elderly relative who didn't know you very well. That's where the $2 bills came from. True. And parents are always like, oh, well, put that in your wallet. Someday, you know, it's a little walking around money, like walking around money. Like, what the hell am I going to do with a what $2 What good is a $2 bill? It's like, well, it's just like a $1 bill, only it's twice as good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Captain Literal. Yeah, I but I always felt like, when I was taking those out of my wallet, if I was going to use them, that whoever I handed them to was going to look at them and go, fallen that far, huh? <laughs> Down to the $2 bills from your uncle? And it's like, I just wanted to buy a heavy metal magazine, man. Take the money. And then they do the whole, like, make sure the thing isn't printed on a printer.
0: Yeah, somebody's got to counterfeit a $2 bill. <laughs> right. And we only have to print half as many. Then, get the, yeah, yeah. then the thing is like, oh, yeah, it's going to be worth money someday. Yeah, $2 if $2. you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, that's what money is. Right.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, it's, it's worth eight quarters. Amazing. <laughs> so strange currency is a strange thing. Again, I lived in England for a little while when they had transitioned over from their money system before was like four guys' teeth, a crown, a half a (laughs) chicken, you know, a stick with a a leaf on it, and some other things, and then a pound, a pound of something. And then when I was there, it was all decimaled. So there was like pence, two pence, that's two pennies, or the equivalent of one, two pence, like five cents, ten cents, or five pence, ten pence, twenty-five pence, fifty pence, and then pound, which all made sense because that's a lot like American money.
0: Right. Right. That's how I was in Canada, right? I had a bunch of Canadian money on me. And I thought, like American money, you have your bills and then you have your coins for less than bills. And I had a $1 coin in my pocket, or so I thought. And this kid like panhandled me and I went to give, he asked me for a dollar. So I gave him a dollar coin. And he looks at me, he goes, that's a $2 coin. I'm like, a $2 coin? (laughs) That's a thing? <laughs> and
1: leave it to somebody in Canada to be a panhandler who's ethical. He's like, uh, you've overpaid me, sir.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me make some change for you. Hold on a minute. Yep. Uh, <laughs> All right, moving on to the 11th, June the 11th, 1989. The fifth movie in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, The Dream Child, uh, comes out in theaters. Can I make a confession? Go ahead. I've never seen that one. Really? Can I make a confession? Yeah. I did. (laughs) I saw this movie in the theater. To the best of my knowledge, because I really don't remember much about it. Like I'm looking at the uh, the one sheet for it now. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty cool artwork. I don't remember this movie at all. And, And like I'm kind of like looking over the cast and I'm looking over like the plot synopsis and stuff and. Yeah, none of this is reaching out at me. Uh, <laughs> Kelly Joe Minter is in it, and you're like, "Who the hell's that?" Uh, Kelly, jo- exactly. <laughs> Kelly, she was in Summer School. She was the, the girl that couldn't drive, and she was dyslexic.
1: Okay, yeah, I yeah. remember that. Yeah, well, well, she's in it. I can't believe it. that. I, I can't believe that. I remember that, but yes, proof positive that I have seen Summer School. Yep. But I've never seen the Dream Child.
0: Uh, Robert England's in it.
1: <laughs> oh, that makes sense. It's on, that's on brand for him. Yes, right. Uh,
0: and apparently, Ted Nugent is in it too. Well, that was bef- yeah, and that would have been before people were like,
1: "Ted Nugent's in it? Ah, I can't go see that." You know, where I would have been like, "The Nugent's in it? Does he play guitar?" <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go see if that one's on one of the streaming services and if it's worth a watch. Uh, well, I think by eighty by eighty nine, I was I was sort of burned out of. Slasher films by then, and they had been neutered over the course of the length of the 1980s, anyway. Yes. So the gore got lesser, and the stories got way dumber, and they were a lot less tense and geared towards younger and younger audiences.
0: Yes, and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, in particular, you know, Freddie started making also the jokes and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but Freddy Krueger is supposed to be the villain of this movie. You know, not who you're actually going to see. Yeah, it it became the law of diminishing returns. And it's to no surprise that the next movie was the end of the franchise called Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare.
1: That one I remember seeing. So I saw that one in the cinema, but I I never saw The Dream Child. I don't know. It must have been playing the same weekend as like Jaws the Revenge or (laughs) freaking Grease 2 or some other stupid one that I also probably went to.
0: Oddly enough, later on, they came out with Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which kind of was in the franchise, but kind of not in the franchise. But that movie—that was a soft reboot,
1: right? Isn't that how that's described? Uh, yeah. Bef- before was that a, was a thing. Right? It was a
0: yeah, and it was like it was a meta movie. It, it was a movie about making the movie. Yeah. So yeah, I actually love that one. That's um, outside of the original. New Nightmare is my favorite in the series. Yeah,
1: it's the other, the only other one directed by Wes Craven, and so it makes sense Yeah, that, that it would be, because Wes Craven is, is awesome.
0: Moving on to
1: the 12th. August 12th, 1991. Heavy metal band Metallica release Metallica, the Black Album, and it debuts at number one on the Billboard 200 album charts. So this is the point where... People who've never listened to Metallica before said, what the hell is this? And everybody who was listening to Metallica up to that time said, what the hell is this? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the audiences shifted.
0: It's like everybody traded places, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was never a huge Metallica fan. I sort of like Master of Puppets and some of the stuff on Ride the Lightning. And I kind of liked Injustice for All. But they were never in my heavy rotation as a listener. Just at the time that that stuff was popular, I was so far into West Coast punk that that's all I listened to. But even I picked up a listening station, or my brother had a copy of the Black Album, and I played through it, and I was like, hey, this isn't as good as the stuff that I remember from before. (laughs) And it, it was way more friendly to the average person's radio listening ear than any of their music had been before.
0: Well, here's what happened with me, right? Is I had many friends, and some of them that like were my best friends that were always hanging around my friend Craig and his brother that were super into Metallica. Metallica was never my band, you know. I kind of liked the Ride the Lightning album. I never got on board with Master of Puppets. I know the Metallica fans will always question my uh, my decision there, but it was it was never for me. I really liked and Justice for All. Uh, You know, production notwithstanding, but I thought the songs were really good. And then whenever the single for Enter Sandman came out, I was very excited because Enter Sandman's a great song, and that's a great riff. That is a great riff. And then um, all the other singles that came off that album, I was like, what is going on? What? I mean, I know you can't detune and hammer eighth notes for the rest of your life, but what is going on with this album? What happened?
1: So for me, I heard Enter Sandman, and I admit that in my, in my my doddering older years now, I, I recognize that song as a much better pop metal song than I ever thought it was. It's a it's a really well put together song. But I, when I heard it in 1991, my first thought, and I swear to God, this is what I thought when I heard it: Oh crap! They just ripped off that shitty Queen's Reich song, Silent Lucidity, and it's the melodically the confused? same. They're thematically similar, and it's oh, the same okay. kind of imagery. And I was like, "Tui, that's the spit noise." Tui, uh, this, this song sucks. And then uh, that turned me off of everything else on the album. Then I heard, was it nothing else matters? The ballad, and I was like, "What the hell is this? <laughs> this is not. What is this?" And that was that was done with them.
0: You want to hear something really funny? <laughs> for years, for years, and not without reason but for years i hated like blood in the face hated rick rubin the producer i still hate rick rubin yeah right my reasoning was every time he touches a band he completely changes them and my examples were you know he took misfits and sam hain and turned them into Danzig. that was rick rubin's doing he's the one that softened slayer from a hardcore band to a metal band, he's the one that turned the Red Hot Chili Peppers into a pop band, so to speak.
1: And and I will say, like again, the, I like the Chili Peppers as long as it's the records that Rick Rubin didn't produce. Blood Sugar Sex Magic is I can't stand it. I that's threw a that Rick tape Rubin away. Thing,
0: right now, that's a Rick Rubin one, the it, one before that one, Mother's Milk, different producer. That oh, yeah, is excellent. I've had oh, that album's Chelsea. fantastic. Right. All right. So I would always cite the Black album. I think it was the video for Unforgiven where they're in the, in the in the recording studio, and Rick Rubin's there. And I just assumed that Rick Rubin produced this album, and literally up until less than a year ago, that was my thing. I thought Rick Rubin produced this album, and then it's not. He just happens to be in the video. No, it was produced by a, a guy named Bob Rock, and also a couple of guys in Metallica.
1: Yeah, I guess Metallica are notoriously difficult to work with in the studio, too, because they all hate one another, and they make it hard to make
0: records. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so August 13th, 1889, the Modern Coffee Pot is patented. Oh. Yep, our friend Hanson Goodrich patents the Modern Stove Coffee Pot. So I remember this growing up because my mom had one. That's how she made my father's coffee. It was basically an urn that you would fill up with water, and there would be like a top metal thing that you would pour your coffee grounds into. And, you know, the water would boil up this little thing in the middle, spit the boiling water through the coffee, and then it would, you know, dissolve back down. Nothing's really changed too much in that design, you know, in over 100 years. Whenever Mr. Coffee came out in 1972, I believe... That was kind of the end of this stovetop coffee pot, but you can still find them. You can still buy them. And, and the
1: coffee that they make tastes different. It's, it tends to be, I don't want to say stronger as far, like it has more caffeine, but it has a stronger flavor mm-hmm. because it keeps recycling the hot water past through the grounds, back up over through the grounds again, over and over again, whereas a drip coffee maker goes through the grounds once. Right. I remember the very first cup of coffee I ever made for myself was at WKKL on a Saturday afternoon. Where I didn't have time or money to go down to the soda machine, or the soda machine was broken, and we had a coffee percolator. So that was the equivalent of a stovetop coffee pot that you could plug into the wall. Okay, so it yeah. Looked like a big, it looked like a big coffee pot with a cord sticking out of the end of it. And you put the coffee in the top, the hot, the water in the in the middle, and then you plug it in and you wait, and it makes horrifying gurgling, possessed demon noises for like 20 minutes, and then you can pour out the coffee, and it pours out clean. None of the grounds travel down into the into the coffee once it's cooked. Right And it was really strong and really flavorful and really good. And ever since then, I've never had anything but black, strong coffee because it tasted so good that first time that I made it in a percolator.
0: I remember when my friend had turned me on to a French press. He had brought up something that I had like kind of forgotten about. He goes, "You remember whenever, like your mom would use like the old you know stovetop coffee pot thing?" He goes, and how it always like the coffee would have that like little oil slick at the top and I'm like yeah I was like yeah why why doesn't that exist anymore he goes cuz you're running everything through a filter so yeah with the french press he goes yeah you get that oil slick you get that nice greasy coffee <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, French press coffee tastes definitely different than drip coffee, which tastes different than percolated coffee. There's a lot to be said for, for taking time to try. If you like coffee especially, is trying good coffee out in different ways of brewing it because yep. it's it's really good. The strangest one that I ever had was I was in college, I had gone to Mystic Seaport with a class that I had about North Atlantic fishing communities, and we stayed on a, a ship there, like a hotel, and they made us a fisherman's dinner, and one of the things that they made was coffee in a big like big metal coffee pot that you put on a wood stove oh, wow and you, the coffee goes in a sock and you <laughs> crack an egg into the water and the egg catches all the grounds. And it was astonishingly good. I've never had coffee like that since, but it's one of those platonic ideals of good coffee that I had. And it was, I think it was like Maxwell house is what they made us, but the process by which it was made gave it such amazing flavor or brought out the flavor in the grounds really, really well, way better than a drip machine did.
0: I, I never had eggy coffee before, but I guess... You know, yeah, it was you. really
1: strange. It was great.
0: All right, let's wrap up the week.
1: August 14th, 1281. So way back in the 12s, during Kublai Khan's second attempt to invade Japan with his Mongol and Chinese uh, navy and mm-hmm. army, a fleet of 3,500 vessels, it's on its way to Japan, and a typhoon... Again, there's no like modern weather forecasting. A yep. typhoon sweeps in and wipes out the entire fleet. This event becomes the origin story of the term divine wind or kamikaze in uh, Japanese, which would go on to become a term of infamy during the Second World War. But the idea that there could be this unknown sort of providence that would come and save this the country from what is clearly certain death.
0: It and also it would... changes my like view on certain things because you just said the name Kublai Khan, which I thought up until... 45 seconds ago was a fictional character in the story Xanadu with the pleasure dome and all that. <laughs> well,
1: it, it, he is in the poem Xanadu or Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Xanadu and was it was in Xanadu did Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. Phew, I can't remember. I can't believe I pulled that stanza out from literature studies, background brain hurt. Now keys lost name forgotten.
0: If you uh, backed out of that, I was going to start singing Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frank who goes to Hollywood, which is essentially but no, that's, the
1: same thing. I'm pretty sure Kublai Khan was the guy that Marco Polo ultimately hung around with when he went.
0: That's not just a summertime sport? What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> yes, he was walking around in China going, Marco, and waiting to see if anybody yelled back. Kublai Khan was a real guy. He was the great, great grandson of Genghis Khan. So it was like Genghis, Monkey, on, one other guy, and then Kublai. Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. All this time. Welcome to Twibbly, folks, where
1: not only do we go back in time, sometimes we learn things on the way.
0: First Rick Rubin, now Kubla Khan. My whole world view is shifting. Yes. I got to go re-register the vote. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. August the 8th, 1953. Sit on it, Potsy. It's uh, a... <laughs> Donnie Most, who played, was probably most famous for playing Ralph Melf on Happy Days. Oh, yeah,
1: one of uh, Richie Cunningham's two friends, right? Potsy and
0: yeah. Ralph. Yeah, the other redhead. Ralph's big gimmick was he was a jokester. Right. He used to crack jokes all the time, and he would be like, "I still got it. I still got it." <laughs> and his
1: father was like funny that way too on the show, right? Because there are a couple episodes where it was shown that he yes. sort of his dad was like a he was like the funny guy at the lodge.
0: Right. Yes. That that was his right. Character? Right. Right. Yeah. Ralph being a chip off the old right, block. Right.
1: I have sure. a book of like one thousand uh, jokes from about the time period that that show was meant to take place. None of them. Yep. Are funny, <laughs> but they were—they're <laughs> all the kind of jokes that you would tell if you were like the funny guy at the lodge.
0: You know. Yes. <laughs> I also remember him playing almost like a Gene Simmons kind of character on an episode of Chips <laughs> with yeah. Eric Estrada, which is a, a funny episode to go back and watch. And Jeez. um and he's uh he's got a few albums. He's got a Spotify channel which has one hundred and twelve monthly listens, which isn't a lot. That's that's definitely <laughs> that's not, not a lot. A lot. It's a, yeah, yeah, that's like probably like thirty five cents that you get paid out every month if you get right, that right, kind right. of listenership. But the music's actually not bad. It's like almost like big band style, like yeah. real old school stuff. Yeah. Wow, that's
1: cool. There's always a place for that. As I've become of advanced age, I find myself considerably widening the sphere of music that I listen to and enjoy. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I'll have to go out
1: and see if I can find some of his croony stuff around. That'd be interesting.
0: And he actually just put out uh, a single as recent as last year called Ooh Ooh Baby. Yeah. Good. Cool. Good for you, Donnie. All right. Next up. August 9th, 1958,
1: actress and director Amanda Beers, who you probably know better as Marcy Rhodes, the next-door neighbor on Married oh, with Children.
0: Oh, okay. Why why does he always say, I look like a chicken?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because she looks like a chicken. She had a funny character arc on that show when she was, she was with Steve, and they were sort of the super-duper sort of preppy, like double-income, no-kids type characters, and then Steve yes. left. She roped in Ted McGinley. I think formerly of, he was on Happy Days for a while, right? He was on Happy Days. He was also the head bully on Revenge of the Nerds. On Revenge of the Nerds. I remember him first from, from being on Happy Days. She roped in Ted, Ted McGinley and sort of owned him. Had an increasingly fraught relationship with uh, the, the next door neighbors with Al as the show went on. Super funny actress. She got her start. Well, at least I remember first seeing her in Fright Night. Yes. She was really good in that. And then she was super funny on Married with Children. She went off to direct a bunch of Married with Children episodes. As well, uh-huh. and then she directs and has been in a bunch of like TV and other stuff kind of since then.
0: Oh, cool. Next up on August the 10th, 1889, Charles B. Darrow, a name you may not recognize,
1: and I don't,
0: but he is probably responsible for more divorces and friendships ending than any other person on the planet because our friend Charles Darrow is the man. Who invented the game Monopoly in 1933?
1: Oh, now if I remember my history of that game right, he built it based on and it, there was an existing sort of game that he yes. he patterned Monopoly off of, right? The Landlord's game or something.
0: Yes, it was another game called the Landlord's game. You get that right. Created by a woman named Lizzie Maggie in 1903. Oh, okay, his was kind of like his game was a lot more, I guess, mean spirited. Like hers was more. You know, players were rewarded when wealth was created where his was all about like hoarding the money. You know, yes. uh, I get, <laughs> there's a couple of social economical models that you can yeah. it definitely argue changes, back and forth it, on. Yeah. It
1: changes the nature of the game, I think, when uh, yes. the the winning condition is that you put everybody else out of business and hoard all the money.
0: Yes, right. Parker Brothers actually initially rejected the game, citing there were 52 fundamental errors. It's now published in 23 different languages and that includes braille.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it must be interesting to, to see what the board is like.
0: I bet it's huge.
1: I bet and, I bet it is and that there's probably like things to put the ho- houses and hotels in so they don't slide
0: around. God, you must I mean, a braille version of Monopoly. You think the real game takes forever. Holy cow.
1: Right. And it probably uses American style money so all the bills are the same size and shape. What do, you mean gone- what do you mean? There's one, fives, tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds, and five hundreds. It's just a big pile of ones. That's how we play. I have
0: no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on.
1: August eleventh, nineteen forty-four. I know you will know this name when I say it. But I'm going to say a quote from this person's most probably most famous character, and you tell me who his birthday is. So, August eleventh, nineteen forty-four. You want this, don't you? The hate is swelling in you now. Take your I Jedi weapon. Senate.
0: Use it. I I thought you were gonna say his most favorite line. I am the Senate. Um. Yeah. I don't know the actor's name, but that's uh, up, uh, that's Emperor Palpatine.
1: <laughs> it is. That's it. Is played by a guy named Ian McDiarmid, and he's. I think he's the only character who appears in the old series all the way through the middle three, and also in the three that are most recent, or
0: part of the three that are most recent. Uh, he came on board in Return of the Jedi, Jedi, right? and then they, they retroactively put him into Emperor Empire Strikes, B- Empire Strikes Back, Back. Empire Strikes Back, yeah. Right. Uh, he wasn't the original Emperor from Empire Strikes Back. Then Sheev, that's his name, Sheev Palpatine, was in Episodes 1, 2, and 3. And then in the modern trilogy, he made a you know don't come don't call it a comeback. He's been in here for years. He was in part nine.
1: Yeah. So again, he's the only guy that's been all three iterations of the collective trilogies of Star Wars. Uh, Except the droids for C three PO. Yeah, the droids are in all. of You know, or the uh, I guess the Wookiees are too. I mean, uh, Chewbacca, right? He's in all Uh, three series. Yeah. Okay, so. uh, the most human of
0: you can make an argument yeah (laughs)
1: you can make an argument yeah Uh, yeah you know so
0: yeah the emperor is absolutely my favorite character in all of the star wars things i think he's a very interesting character yeah i don't know what else mr ian has done outside of palpatine but he's done a hell of a job doing it i think he was uh
1: he's more like a stage guy he did a lot of of like british stage productions and stuff okay That's where those who are in the theater gangs of people who listen to our show will know him from. But we know him as the emperor.
0: Oh, I'm afraid. All right. uh, Moving on to the 12th, August the 12th, 1949, the guitar player for Dire Straits, Mr. Mark Knopfler.
1: Oh, he's also the singer and songwriter for that band, too.
0: Yeah, I probably should have mentioned that. <laughs> but he's such an amazing and iconic guitar player.
1: Very distinctive sounds. Distinctive like Brian May's guitar is distinctive. Like Jimmy Page's guitar playing is distinctive. As right, soon as like you David hear Gilmore. the tone of his guitar, you know exactly... Yeah, like David Gilmour, you know exactly who's
0: playing. Yeah, just one note, you're like, oh, that's Knopfler. Yep, yep.
1: That's clearly Mark Knopfler, yep.
0: I remember the... The Brothers in Arms album, that's the one with Money for Nothing. That was the one that really put Dire Straits like on the map pop music-wise. I remember that album coming out and my brother bought me that and the Sting Dream of the Blue Turtles cassettes for my birthday. I had never been like a Dire Straits fan. I thought it was kind of an interesting choice that he bought that cassette, but the first song on that album is a song called So Far Away. Yeah. And it just sets the tone for the album. That Brothers in Arms album is awesome. Front to back, that's an amazing album. It's a great record. I, I also love
1: making movies. So my experience finding finding them was I had heard and saw the video for Skate Away, which was a cool. single from Making Movies. That was yes. I don't know, maybe four years before Brothers in Arms came out.
0: Right, Toro that, Toro that, Taxi.
1: Right, that made the run on sometimes on MTV, but certainly a lot more. I saw it on Night Flight, which I used to watch on Friday Friday nights on the USA Network. Uh, and I always thought that song was fantastic. Turns out that whole record is mostly fantastic.
0: And as far as I know, he is the only rock star that has a bug named after him. <laughs> hey, a bug. Yep. Like a bug. Uh, not just the song The Bug, but there is an insect that is oh. named after Mark Knopfler, yeah.
1: So is it named, Is what's it called, like the Knopfler fly or something?
0: It's like Marcus Knopfler or something, yeah. Wow.
1: Is that a good thing? Is that like, is he like, oh, that's lovely. i have loved to have an insect named after me. Or is he like, yeah.
0: oh, come on now. <laughs> I could see like somebody else like making the joke with him. It's like, yeah, I got a bug named after me. And they go, yeah, that's because dung beetle was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> yep, next up for the 13th.
1: August thirteenth, eighteen ninety nine, Alfred Hitchcock, the British director who never heard of him, who pretty much redefined sort of suspense cinema in the late fifties, sixties, briefly into the nineteen seventies. He also had a big presence on television, yep, uh, with the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show, which was like a weird but not science fictiony anthology mystery show, right? That ran for I think five seasons or six seasons, like kind of like the Twilight Zone did. Uh, and bought stories out of short story magazines that were really popular at the time.
0: You know what I really liked about Alfred Hitchcock is that, one, he always used to put himself as a cameo in his movies. Like, I believe in Psycho, right at the beginning, you can see him, like, walking by the office building, walking like some miniature dogs. Yes. The other thing, he was... Uh, superstitious, I think, about drinking out of the same teacup twice. I think you told so, me that, yeah. Yeah, so he would drink his tea, and when he was he was done, he would throw, throw it over his, his shoulder. Hedren. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He'd whip the cup at Tippy Hedren. <laughs>
0: no, he would throw it over his shoulder and just like let it crash behind him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And if you ever get a chance to see the movie called Hitchcock what? with Tony Hopkins in the title role it's fantastic it's definitely definitely worth your time and Scarlett johansson yes plays janet lee okay and she's amazing i completely lose her as Scott. Scar- i don't see Scarlett johansson i, I only see janet lee oh she's wow fantastic yeah i'll definitely have to dig it out and i didn't even notice that tony hopkins was hitchcock until i was like halfway through the movie because of all the makeup was
1: yep. there any Who else is in the film? Is there anybody else you didn't recognize? Nobody.
0: (laughs) Just those two. Is there anybody else? (laughs) And wrapping up the birthdays on August the 14th of 1950, weekly cartoon extraordinaire, Mr. Gary Larson, Uh, who was the creator and cartoonist of The Far Side.
1: Still arguably one of the greatest newspaper cartoons of all time.
0: Yeah, very quirky humor, inspired a lot, a lot of people. There's a lot of, I don't want to say rip-offs, because that's you know, probably a poor choice of words, but a lot of people... Homages, yeah, yeah. Yeah, were very inspired by Gary Larson's style and quirky take on the
1: world. One of his panels is now uh, ensconced, much like Mark Narfler having a beetle named after him. The yeah. uh, The tail, you know, the spiky tail of a stegosaurus... Yes. That is named for something that he used in a comic. Really? So, yeah. In the panel, it's a bunch of cavemen standing around a drawing of a Stegosaurus. Yep. And they're pointing it, and one of them's pointing at the tail. And he says, we call that the Thagomizer after Thag Goldstein got squished. <laughs> <laughs> so that that part of the Stegosaurus, when they find Stegosaurus fossils with those four big horns, that's a yep. Thagomizer. <laughs>
0: really that is hilarious yep yeah all right uh real quick do you have a favorite of course you do my favorite changes from time to time so what's yours this week
1: uh all right for this week i'm gonna say it's the there's a bear standing outside the cave and he's got a big bullseye painted on him and a dart still stuck at his side he's got a radio collar Uh, around his neck and a tag in his ear and the bear's wife says and where were you last night?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the one I picked was very similar. I was like, oh my God, he picked the same one but in mine, it's two deer Mm -hmm. and they're standing up. They're standing up straight like humanoids and one of them right over his heart has got a bullseye (laughs) And the other deer says, wow, that's a bummer of a birthmark you got there, Hal.
1: Yep, I remember that one. Bummer of a birthmark, (laughs) Hal. Yes. As soon as you started to describe it, I knew exactly which one you meant. Well, I think that's part of the legacy of how good those comics were, is that they have a tremendous amount of longevity. They're going to be timeless. They're funny. They're going to be funny forever. Whether it's the kid pushing the door that says pull to enter at the school for the gifted, or, (laughs) or the doctor that's patents the device to cure fear of snakes heights in the dark all at once and is one person hanging in a closet over the side of a building covered by snakes (laughs) Uh, (laughs) they'll be around forever to make people laugh
0: no one else is going to be around forever the worst song ever all right jeff what do we got loaded up in the cannon ready to shoot a rocket to the moon oh
1: let me take you back to the halcyon days Bill of 1985. You remember 1985, don't you? I do. It was the the year of like the charity single. Yep. And one of the charity singles that we had was a stunning piece of work we'll be discussing today. You know how we love charity singles for the worst song ever.
0: Yeah, we've had a number of them on here. Yes, Um, yes, yes. We had Hands Across America. We had We Are the World. Yep. What else? We also
1: have uh, David Bowie and Mick Jagger singing Dancing in the Street a cover a well-worn cover of a Marvin Gaye written Martha and the Vandellas song. So this is this is another charity song that falls almost under the Bob Geldof Live Aid sort of umbrella because this, this is a Live Aid single which they also played at the Prince's Trust concert which was a huge concert to raise money for charity. Right. So David Bowie was recording the soundtrack to this the film Absolute Beginners which Underrated but well put together film musical. Yep, and flew in. In flew Mick Jagger. I don't know if David Bowie flew him out or he flew in on his own, but showed up at the studio where he was recording Absolute Beginners. 13 hours later, this song was completed, as was the accompanying astonishingly terrible video.
0: Uh, let's play the clip. Sweet music. Now, this video is famously horrible. They have parodied it on Family Guy. I remember there was like a meme kind of going around of the video with no sound, which just makes it completely weird and awkward. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I watched that one a couple of times today in advance of this recording.
0: And it's a good thing that this was for Live Aid because Live Aid raised like $127 million for famine relief. So you could just see like Mick and David Bowie like showing up like ah oh, hey there Bob uh we got another fifteen dollars for you we raised with this video. <laughs> it did raise a
1: bunch of money. I mean the song went to like number one in the UK, went to number seven in the what? states. They played it on MTV approximately twenty seven times an hour for a few years. It feels like I remember rolling my eyes when this song I'd hear the beginning, which is just like. An echo and i go oh no oh, yeah you're like, doing
0: like the whistle yeah 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 oh and i go
1: oh oh this is the longest three minutes of my life oh,
0: my god this is the kind of video that they should show at like camps to keep kids from masturbating it's just like just it's it definitely has that feel
1: yeah. i wonder if they were like okay we can have some fun with this we'll just follow my lead what, what do you mean we need a video we don't have a script don't worry, Bob's got a handy cam. We'll we'll figure something out and just dance around like a an idiot. Yep. And that's the, <laughs> that's the that's the entire video. Bob's got a handy cam. I got a big pair of parachute pants. <laughs> so I'm dressed in my pajamas with a trench coat on and let's rock and rock. This song does not. This song is it's a signature Motown song. Yeah. And for that, I like it. But it feels like a sort of lazy version of something like the locomotion where they they were trying to come up with, like, we need another dance song. A dance that we can add to a song that's going to make the song popular. It'll be a dance craze. But they couldn't really figure out the steps. And they're like, you know what? Rather than try and describe a dance, just say dancing in the street. That's all. We won't call it something. We'll just say dancing in the street. So that's what you end up. uh, The Martha and the Vandellas version gets played all the time on oldies radio. And it's a decent, good song. The Mamas and the Papas version is great. It sounds like the Fifth Dimension because they kind of sound like the Fifth Dimension, so it's a little softer and floofier. I remember
0: Van Halen doing a cover of this. and Yeah, it's on Diver Down. Yeah, yeah. and it sounds tremendously like somebody other than Van Halen.
1: The,
0: well, I love the opening. Yeah. That...
1: Like the guitar wah-wah. Yeah. It's so good. It kind
0: of... Sh- like Yeah, I like it too. I like it fine, but it kind of shows like the direction that... Van Halen was about to go in with a lot more keyboards and stuff like that because there's some sequencers going on with this song uh, on the Van Halen version, yeah. And there's a version by The Kinks that's pretty decent too on one
1: of their early, early records. But of all of them, this is the one that, you know, was out at the age of MTV. And like Rod Stewart, not but a year or so later, doing pull out those old Motown records and making us all not want to do that yeah we have this which is the same sort of thing that sort of it's unnecessarily nostalgic it has one foot in the time period where it was recorded because that's when mick jagger was just kind of getting started like mid 60s Uh it features the sort of super duper polished caricature of david bowie that david bowie had become by mid 80s that even he didn't like yeah that
0: was 80s david bowie yeah that was uh 80s david bowie that was the serious moonlight david bowie right Uh, it's a
1: charity single so it already kind of sucks You know, this song is thrown together like an Ikea bookcase. It's, like, cheap. It's probably okay, but it's not going to last a long time. And no one's going to remember it other than to say, like, oh, that bookcase kind of looks ugly over It just isn't good. I
0: think out of the several thousand covers that we have mentioned of this song, you know, from the original Mother and the Vandels to Van Halen to you mentioned the Kinks, I think out of all the versions of this song, the only version... That people say, what on God's green earth were you thinking is going to be the Mick Jagger, David Bowie one?
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure the answer to that question is I was thinking we have a lot of cocaine in the (laughs) studio. And that will power us through having to make a song, a single, and a video and mix it and get it all ready for MTV in 13 hours. Special mention, really, for the video of this song. It is astonishingly bad. It is Billy Squire bad. It is terrible. And the only thing that keeps these two from being catapulted off the earth by the suckiness of this video is the fact that they were David Bowie and Mick Jagger.
0: No, Right, yeah. Their the star power was pretty high. The, they weren't going to get the Billy Squire treatment out of this. All right, so before we wrap up the show, we do have our very popular and always well-received trivia question. My question for you is, what state was so dumb that they, they gave themselves the state vegetable of the watermelon? You have a one in fifty chance, Jeff. Whose uh, state vegetable is the watermelon?
1: I'm I'm sticking with my original guess at the two percent chance of success with Alabama.
0: Good good solid guess. I think Florida would have been a you know a pretty solid guess too. Nope. Oklahoma for whatever reason. Oklahoma. Oklahoma's state vegetable is the watermelon. Oh, Way to Oklahoma, go guys. where
1: the watermelons rolling down the plain. Right? Is that how the song goes? It's exactly how
0: it goes. <laughs> okay. All right. That's going to wrap up the show for this week. Uh, we'll see you back here in exactly seven days.
1: I like it. All right. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody.
0: Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibley Or this week was way better last year. You can find us on messages on Facebook or Instagram using twwbly. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, Twibley is like candy. It's more fun when you share. What? No. Who writes this? That's not like candy at all.